The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us from this passage the power of your Son's Word to redeem. We praise you, Lord, for giving us a glimpse here through this miracle and this calling of Peter, James, and John. Not only the great work that Christ would accomplish through his death on the cross, but the great work that he would give to his church, his people, to continue fishing. I ask, Lord, that you would be pleased this morning to present Christ to us in all of his glory. Show us his majesty. Show us his power. Show us his goodness, Father, to sinners like us so that our hearts might soar for Christ. And in that affection, Lord, in that transformed affection for Jesus, I pray that you would make us fishers of men. Each and every one of us, Father, that you would cast our eyes upon the fields that are ripe, that you would show us the lost in our lives that have yet to hear the gospel of grace and that we would be faithful to open our mouths and preach Christ. Do that here at Christ Community Church, I pray. Do that at all your true churches here in the South Bay so that we might see through your people a great revival. Father, we know this place is dark. We know these times are dark. And yet we know that Christ is infinitely brighter and we know of the power of the gospel. And so be pleased, Father, to use sinners like us to magnify your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. title of the sermon is The Divine Fisher of Men, of course, speaking of Christ. If, uh, if you know the Gospel of Luke, I know we're not doing this systematically, which is very odd for us. Um, we don't like to preach out of context, so I'm going to make sure that we don't do that. In the first four Gospels of Luke, many of you actually know it very well. In the first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke, I'm sorry, we have the, the, the writer is trying to establish Jesus as the Messiah, as the long-awaited Messiah. And he does so with great detail. He talks about his virgin birth. He talks about his genealogy going all the way back to Adam. He presents the, the testimony of the father to the son at his baptism in the Jordan by, by John. He writes of the temptation of Satan in the desert. And then he, he talks about his early Galilean ministry where he was teaching and healing. So this is the very beginning of that first year of the three and a half years of, of Christ's ministry on earth. Luke tells us that while he was teaching in the synagogue of Galilee, that the people were astonished at his teachings for his word possessed authority. It possessed power. So much authority and so much power that he had the ability to cast out demons. In fact, when he casted out the demons early in his ministry, they knew exactly who Jesus is. One of the demons that was being cast out, he said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And as the people listened, they were amazed. And then he cast out another demon, and the demon said, you are the Son of God. For he knew, Luke tells us, that Jesus is the Christ. And when we use that word Christ, we mean the Savior of the world, the Son of God who would come to earth to do what? To inaugurate the redemptive plan, to establish his kingdom on earth. 
And so for the first four chapters, Luke establishes the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And then he begins in chapter 5 with the calling of those who would follow Jesus. The calling of the disciples, specifically Peter, James, and John. And if you know your gospel testimonies, the calling of of Peter, James, and John is very different in Luke than it is, well I shouldn't say very different, than Matthew and Mark. There's a story there, There's there's a miracle story there, the catching of the fish, which we don't get by Matthew or by Mark. And, and I believe that, that Jesus has this miracle commingled with the calling of Peter, James, and John to reveal to us, to the church, that he is the divine fisher of men and that through his word, he would not save a multitude of fish but a multitude of people into his Father's kingdom. I believe that the catching of the fish on that day on that miraculous day in Peter's boat, it was a metaphor, a teaching metaphor at how this mission of this Messiah would bear much fruit. Millions of people coming to a saving grace and following Jesus into eternal life. We had a chance two weeks ago through the story of the paralytic to to see Jesus as the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And if you're here with us last week, we had a chance through the story of Zacchaeus to see Jesus as what? As the friend, the friend of sinners, the one who seeks and saves the lost. And I hope for the last two weeks that if, as you've contemplated Christ, your heart is soared for him. It's, it's kindled a love relationship because that's really the key to following Jesus. It's his love for you and your response in love to him. And this morning, I want to I show you Christ as God's divine fisherman the one who loves sinners so much that he gave his life to catch you and to catch those around you that we might have eternal life. So let's do that. Let's, let's come to know Jesus a little bit better this morning. In the next 40 or 45 minutes, let's come to know him as this divine fisher of men as we consider two things from the text. Number one, Jesus' power and desire to catch the multitudes for eternal life. His power and his desire to catch the multitudes for eternal life. And number two, Jesus' call for us to participate in his eternal catch. Jesus' call for us to participate in his eternal catch. The theme of the sermon is this. Jesus is still fishing and is calling you to fish with him. Now, I have to, I have to tell you, I can't stand fishing. Uh, my father is a fisherman. He's a fisherman at heart. He loves to fish. He trained us when we were young to fish. He took us out in the boat. Um, I just don't like it. I never liked it. I don't like eating fish. So uh, when I'm catching something I don't want to eat, I'm not terribly motivated to catch it. If I were catching Hershey bars, I'd be on the lake every single day. So in the preparation of this, I thought, well, Lord, help me understand this, this desire to fish. I'm thankful that the Lord changed my heart not to fish for fish, but to fish for men. And I hope that you have that desire at the end of our time together as well. Point number one, Jesus' power and desire to catch the multitudes for eternal life. Look at verse one. Luke five, verse one. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So we we know from chapter four that he had been preaching in the synagogues all throughout Judea. And, and we pick up here at the beginning of five and, and we find Jesus by, by Lake Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. Um, most of you know that sea that, that's in the region of Galilee, obviously, hence the name. 
It, it, is, it, it was and is still today a place to catch lots of fish. It's actually the, the deepest deep water, when I say deepest, as in the, um, the lowest lake below sea level in the world is the Sea of Galilee. It's actually 705 feet below sea level, and it, it has an abundance of fish. And so Jesus is out, he's preaching to the crowds, and there's so many there at the lake with him, they're pressing in on him. They, he literally has no ability to speak. And so look at verse 2. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So he, he, he's, he's pressed in by the people, he looks around, he sees a couple boats, he sees Peter's boat, he knows Peter, he'd already healed Peter's mother-in-law the chapter before. So they had fished all night unsuccessfully, they're washing their nets, putting their nets away for the day. They're going to wait until the following day to go out again. So it's probably mid to late morning, sometime in there. And Jesus says to Peter, you know, let me get in your boat, push out a little bit away, and I'm going to preach from this floating pulpit. In other words, he's going to continue fishing for men now from a fishing boat. And so the metaphor is really set up for us. And in fact, the miracle is being set up for us as well, that Jesus will be fishing for men like us. And after finishing his teaching, Jesus wants to reveal the power of his message. Right? He's talking about salvation by grace through faith. He's preaching the gospel. And that's one thing to hear the word of God. And Jesus says, I want you to see the power behind the words that I'm preaching. And so he's going to perform a miracle before Peter, before James, before John, and before all those watching on the shore. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Put out and let's go fishing again, Simon. It's a strange request coming from Christ. You say, well, he's the son of God. He knows everything. Yeah, but they only know him to be a carpenter. And this carpenter has no business telling a seasoned fisherman to go back out in the deep and put your nets in again. It was a strange request from a man like Jesus. Peter was seasoned they had fished all night in the best places in the lake and they came up short. They were tired and it was too late in the day to fish. Now even I, who do not like fishing, my dad taught me you've got to get up early and when it gets too hot, they just stop biting. Even I know that. And so Peter is, he's reluctant. He's listening reluctantly, but Peter obeys. Look at verse five. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They singled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. Now, it wasn't uncommon for, for boats to fish together, you, sometimes because a catch would be too big for one boat, and oftentimes for the purpose of safety. But here, this catch, this is a supernatural catch. This catch is so big, the nets that they have for fishing are breaking, and as they bring the fish into the boats, the boats are sinking. In other words, they reluctantly obey Jesus' words, and the result was something miraculous, something improbable. We would argue something impossible what they were unable to do, these seasoned fishermen the night before in the lake they knew well, in the best parts of the lake, suddenly, 
all these fish are now swimming directly into Peter's net. It was an unprecedented supernatural catch. A multitude of fish caught by what? By the power and authority of God's word. Jesus said, drop your nets, and the fish came. In fact, the word that's used to describe this large number of fish, the word's probably better translated multitude. It's palus in the Greek. And what, the only reason I point that out, the same word that, that Luke uses in the book of Acts over 12 times, and oftentimes speaking of it, of the multitudes that are being caught for Christ and coming into the kingdom. Same exact word used to catch the fish Luke uses in the catching of people. Acts 5.14, Luke says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 14.1, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a multitude of Greeks and Jews believed and were saved. In other words, the, the multitude of fish caught here by the power and authority of God's word in this boat, pointed to, brilliantly, the movement that Jesus was putting in place. Peter and James and John and all those were witnessing that Christ was not just one who spoke, he had power behind his words. He could actually accomplish what he said he had come to do, which was to seek and save the lost. This movement of bringing souls men and women and children, out of the darkness of sin and death and into his Father's kingdom. It's substantiated by this miracle. By this miracle, Jesus reveals that he is in fact the Savior. He is the Messiah. And by this miracle, he reveals that his word has power. Real power, my beloved. You know, one of my prayers this week, and it probably should be my prayer each week as I prepared the sermon was not that this would be the best sermon that I ever preached or that made perfect sense or that you heard it clearly. It was that God's word had the power to come upon you and transform you. That's what we believe. That's what we believe as evangelicals. That's what we believe as Southern Baptists, that this word has real power to transform you if you receive it to bring salvation to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, it was Peter's obedience to Jesus' words that brought in the multitude of fish. And it would be man's obedience to Jesus' words to repent and believe and be saved that will bring multitudes into the eternal kingdom. In other words, if I, if I can say this without offending anybody, his words are the bait. His words are the bait. Right? It's great bait. It's God-honoring bait, it's man-honoring bait, but it is the bait, it's the word of God that goes out. That's why he was preaching it in the synagogues. That's why he was preaching it on the shore. That's why he was preaching it on the boat. That's why the people were attracted to it. They wanted to hear this word of God that resonated truth for the first time for many of them. The word of God, my beloved, is, it's, not, it's not some advertising campaign. It's not like words that we get today trying to trick us or manipulate us or get us to buy something. The word of God is truth. It is pure, undefiled, Holy Spirit-inspired truth. The word of God tells us the truth about God, who he is. The word of God tells the truth about ourselves, that we're sinners in need of salvation. The word of God tells us truth about this world and about Christ and about salvation in Christ. The word of God is, in fact, the bait 
And it is the best bait that we can have because when we take the bait and when we give the bait, we can be set free from all the lies that we hear day after day in this place. You know those lies. There is no God. I heard that as a young boy. And if there is a God, well, then he doesn't really care how you live because it's heaven for everyone. Or there is a God and he does care, but all you have to do is live a moral life. Make sure that you don't kill, you don't rape, you don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse, and, and then heaven's yours. Those are all lies. God's, works, God's word speaks against those lies with truth. You see, the word of God has the power to capture hearts and minds. It has the power to set us free from these lies so that we might see God clearly and follow Christ nearly to be set free to enjoy God, to know God. It's the reason the Apostle Paul, as you know, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the word of God, for it is the power of God for salvation to whom? To everyone who believes. Paul understood its power. We still don't. I think that's one of the reasons we're so silent. We think somehow we have to manipulate or cajole or convince rather than proclaim the word of God. The miracle of catching the fish is a revelation that we want to hold on to of God's power through his word doing the impossible on that morning. And it's by God's power through his word that he does the impossible through you. Right? When you preach the gospel and you share the gospel with your friends and family and they repent and they believe, it's impossible for them to do that on their own. You're calling them out of the darkness. And what does God do? God changes them from the inside out. He makes those who are dead alive. Those who hate him want to follow him. And he does that through his word and through us. So the first thing I want us to see is Jesus' power and desire to save the multitudes for eternal life. That's why he came. That's why he reigns now in order to draw more people to himself. That power by his word reveals that he is a friend of sinners, that he does seek and save the lost, that he is God's divine fisherman. But there's something else from this text that I want to point out, and it, it, it probably takes up the weight of the text. It's truly extraordinary. It's, it's Peter and James and John's response to Jesus and, and, and what Jesus actually calls them to do. Point number two, I, I pray you're still with me. Jesus' call for us to participate in his eternal catch. Jesus' call for us to participate in his eternal catch. True statement, all those who come to a saving grace in Christ come by the power of Christ. If you know Jesus, it's because of Jesus. It's because his word was brought to you. And with the exception, and this is the only exception, with the exception of those who heard the word proclaimed directly from Jesus' mouth, everyone else has come to Jesus by the agency of other men, including you, unless you're really, 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 really old. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Christ has the power to save. And then he said what? Go and make disciples. I have the power to save. Now go and make disciples. And if you know Christ, then, then someone shared the gospel with you. Oh, and don't you love him? You do. And, and the Holy Spirit took the word and it 
He made you alive. He breathed life into you. We call that regeneration. And then now that you were alive, you saw God clearly and and you saw your sin clearly and you repented of your sins and and you put your faith in God and and Christ and and you started following Jesus. And, And you're here, I hope, because of that, that you're here worshiping God with God's people on the Lord's Day because someone in your life shared the gospel with you. Look at verse 10, latter part. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. So Christ is the one who has the power through his word to save, but he uses his means of salvation, our Holy Spirit indwelt believers, you and me, the church. The same power that enabled the Son of God to do the impossible that day on the Sea of Galilee, bringing in that that net-tearing, boat-sinking multitude of fish, he now uses through his people to bring the multitudes into the kingdom, and he does the impossible. He changes hearts from stone to flesh. He changes desires from evil to good. He changes our motivation from self to others, and he changes our love from idols to him. God does this through his people. The question I want to ask as we, as we consider the second point is what are the characteristics of these fishers of men? Who are they? We would say it's the church, but are there qualifications to fish? Even though my father raised me to fish, I do not feel qualified to fish. What are the characteristics, the, the, the qualifications of those who have been set to this great commission with Jesus. Jesus is the divine fisher of men, and he's called us to be fishers of men too. I want to ask and answer that so that we listen. I want us to, I want us to be praying and striving to be these people, not by the power of the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit. There are three characteristics of the fishers of men that I, I saw from this text, and they're... they're They're going to be plain for you to see as well. Obedience, humility, and treasure. Obedience, humility, and treasure. Obedience to God's word, humility of heart, true humility, and having Christ as our greatest treasure. Those are the characteristics of these fishers of men that Jesus called then, and I believe they apply to the church today. So first, Christ followers who win souls to Jesus are obedient to God's word. After Jesus told Peter to put down his nets. Look at verse 5 again. Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. If Simon had not obeyed, there would have been no miraculous catch. You say, well, well, Jesus could have had the fish just jump into the boat. I mean, no nets needed. That's true. He could have, but that would have defeated the purpose of the parable of the catching of the multitude in the nets. Simon put out the nets and we're thankful for that, but you could hear from his tone of voice that he's a bit reluctant. This is not super faithful obedience. This is mediocre obedience. He says, Master, we toiled all night. You know what that means, right? You say, Master, we're tired. We're tired. We're washing our nets. We're getting ready to put them away for the day. 
We know fishing. Go back to your carpentry lovingly. We'll come back out again tomorrow. Peter, Peter could have said that. And had he said that, then God, Christ, would not have performed the miracle because there would have been no obedience to it. It was Peter's obedience that brought about the miraculous revelation of Jesus as the fisher of men. So Peter's obedience becomes an example for us, and I believe a wonderful example of how God will work through our obedience. But the reason it's such a great example is because it's less than perfect obedience. And I don't know about you, but my obedience, more often than not, is not all that perfect. And so I, I really cherish that Peter responded like this, okay, Lord, uh, but, all right, I'm going to do it. He's not overflowing with enthusiasm. He said, Master, we toiled all night. We're tired. We know fishing. You don't. We know this lake. You don't. But even with all of Peter's doubts, what does he do? He puts the word of God, he puts Jesus' word above his own feelings and his own desires and his own experience, and he throws the nets down. He goes back out in the deep, and he throws the nets down. He says, at your, look at verse 5 again, latter part, at your word... I will let down the nets. I don't think it's a good idea, Lord, but because you said it, but because of your word, I will let down the nets. This, this simple, childlike obedience, my beloved, is essential if you want to be a follower of Christ and a fisher of men. It is necessary. If you wait for your faith to be perfect, if you wait for your faith to have no reservations, you're not only going to struggle following Christ, you're never going to share the gospel. You're just not going to do it because you think it's more about you and your proclamation and your abilities than in what? In the word of God. By your word, I will proclaim the gospel even when I don't want to, Jesus. Our faith is imperfect and it will be until your faith is turned to sight. But praise God that Jesus still honors our simple, mediocre, flawed obedience. Aren't you thankful for that? Uh, I, I certainly am, my beloved. Don't you find it encouraging that Jesus didn't say, all right, Peter, back to the shore. That's just not good faith. That's not strong enough faith. He doesn't say that to Peter. He honors Peter's mediocre faith and performs the miracle. Anyway, my beloved, that's exactly what Christ, that's what he wants from you. He wants your willingness to go against your experience. He wants your willingness to go against your failures. Against the pressures of a watching world that tells you what? Keep your net in the boat. Keep the gospel to yourself. Keep your mouth closed about Christ and religion and church and the Bible. I don't want to hear it. He wants you to simply trust him. He wants you simply to hear and obey even when you don't feel like it. This brings about miracles. He wants you to believe, not in your abilities, not in your courage, and not in your eloquence. He wants you to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and redeem souls. Simple faith. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and redeem souls. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said to the disciples this, I am the vine, 
You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will what? Finish with me. You will bear much fruit. You'll bear much fruit. The divine fisherman says, come to me, stay with me, dwell with me, follow me, obey me, and you're going to be shocked. Even in your mediocre obedience, how many people come into the kingdom through your testimony, through the gospel you share. My older brother was the first one in my family. We were not, I'm not from a Christian home. I was not raised in a Christian home. My brother came to a saving grace after he graduated from high school. He was the first one to bring the gospel into my household. He had every reason not to share the gospel with us. We were a very worldly home. Me, my parents, my brothers, we were very worldly. We, in fact, we laughed at his newfound faith. We mocked him, literally mocked him. We got angry with him when he would talk to us about Jesus and talk to us about the Bible, and we hated it when he talked about sin. We told him to stop talking. But my, my brother refused to let his desire for peace in our family supersede one is obedience to God and two is desire for us to be saved. Mm. And so he continued to pray and he continued to share. He continued to fish for us. And one by one, my entire family got caught in Jesus' net. One by one until after a few years through his faithfulness and the prayers of this church, my whole family was following Jesus. I know there were times when he had every desire to keep the nets in the boat and say, enough with you. I'm going to kick the dust off my feet. And he, he probably could have been justified in doing that, but his faithful obedience to Christ bore much fruit for my entire family. Yeah, it's good. It was Jesus' power that saved me, but he used my brother's fishing to bring me to the gospel. Christ saved me, but he used my brother's fishing to bring me to the gospel, which is somewhat ironic because my brother hates fishing too. So, um, so much for that. How many in your mission field, my beloved, are waiting for the nets to be cast? I want you to think of people in your life, family and friends and coworkers and neighbors, who have never had the net cast. They've never seen your nets. They've never heard the gospel from your lips. They cannot repent and believe because they have not heard. I want you to think about them and I want you to begin praying for them so that you can, in simple obedience, even when you don't want to, cast, that, cast those nets out so they too might be saved. So the first mark of a fisher of men is obedience to the word of God. Simple obedience, imperfect obedience, but obedience. The second mark is this. It's humility. I'm talking about true, life-transforming humility. Not the moments you have where you think you're being humble, but where your heart has been transformed to be humble. Look at verse 8 again. Verse 8, but when Peter saw it, when he saw the miraculous catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So, I mean, the fish are coming in. And and when, when the fish is coming in, 
even if you don't like fishing like me, it's exciting when the fish are coming in. And so Peter's busy getting these fish in the boat. He's, he's caught up in directing his crew to bring this supernatural catch in. But then the catch is complete, and he has a moment to reflect on what has just happened. And the weight of glory, the weight of God's glory, and the presence of God overwhelms him. I mean, who but God could control the movements of hundreds of fish directly into his nets at such an improbable time on the lake. Peter realized, as a sinful man, he was in the presence of deity. He saw it. God showed that to him. And so he's rightly overcome by Jesus' power. He's rightly overcome by Jesus' goodness, that Jesus would be that good to a sinner like him, and it only magnified his own unworthiness So he falls to Jesus' knees in true humility. And he asks Jesus to what? He says, depart from me. Depart from me. You are too good. You're too holy. You're too glorious to be in the presence of me. He says, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Did you notice that? O Lord. In verse 5, he called him master. He said, master, we fished all night. But now the title master was woefully inadequate. And Jesus changes it to Lord as in the divine sense. Lord, God, Almighty, depart from me. I am a sinner. Now Peter had already seen, he had seen Jesus heal. Jesus healed his own mother-in-law. He had heard Jesus' teaching. He had seen Jesus cast out demons But this revelation in his own boat, doing his trade, puts Peter on his knees. The Holy Spirit opened Peter's eyes on that day, and Peter actually saw Jesus for who he truly is. And so he bows down, and he confesses himself to be a sinner. He's having an Isaiah 6 moment. You know that. Remember the great prophet Isaiah In chapter 6, he's ushered up into the throne room of God and he gets a glimpse of God seated high upon his throne. He sees his majesty and he sees his glory and Isaiah's response is the exact same as Peter's. Isaiah cries out, Isaiah 6, 5, Woe to me, I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm dead. In that boat, Jesus displayed his power and his goodness and it rightly brought Peter to his knees because Peter saw, maybe for the first time, the depths of his sinful heart. Peter looked at pure grace, pure divine grace. He was staring at God in the face and he felt utterly unworthy because he was. The gift was too much. The gift giver is too much And so he's humbled, I mean truly humbled. And we know Peter struggled with humility, we know that from the gospel accounts, but this is the first time he's truly humbled to the core of his being, and in that humility, listen closely, he's now fit to be a fisher of men. Now he can fish, whereas before he could not. You say, well, why is that? A cocky witness, an arrogant witness to the gospel of grace is a terrible witness evangelists who are full of themselves and not full of God, those who proclaim the gospel and are pleased with their words more than the power of God's word, and there are many today, my beloved, too many, they contradict the very gospel of grace, do they not? How can you be arrogant and proclaim Christ? 
How can you be arrogant and proclaim the gospel, which says that you are a sinner through and through and need of salvation? Only those who are truly humbled, and I mean knowing and feeling unworthy of every blessing we have, especially the blessing of being saved, can become fishers of men. And maybe, my friends, that's, maybe that's one of the reasons we don't fish so well. Maybe. Maybe the fruit of our nets is so meager because as Western Christians, that core humility that comes from seeing the living God in our own sin evades us. I mean, most Western Christians, we, we think we deserve just about everything we have. We think we have the right, because we're American Christians, we have the right to what we want when we want it. And I, and I think that's revealed best, my beloved, by the fact that when we don't get what we want when we want it, we get upset, we get angry, we get discouraged. Constant state of expectations not being met, and therefore we get upset or sad or angry. Well, that's not a humble heart. A humble heart knows what we rightly deserve, which is eternal damnation. And therefore, we rejoice every day in the fact that Christ has saved us. Humility, true humility, I believe is challenging for us because not only do we expect the prosperous Western life, but deep down, and we know this statistically from the data we collect in the evangelical church, deep down, we don't think we're all that bad. I mean, we really don't. We say we're orthodox in the total depravity of the human heart. We say that. But deep down, we still think that we sin, but we're not sinners through and through. Deep down, we think, yeah, hell should be reserved for the worst people, but I'm not the worst, therefore not me. I know we don't say that because that would be theological suicide, but we live like that. We don't see ourselves as deserving of being cast out of the immediate presence of God. Isaiah did, Peter did, because they saw God, and in seeing God, they saw themselves, and they say, cast me out. I do not belong in your presence. Well, the consequences of lacking truly humble hearts results in either an arrogant witness, which is a terrible witness, better to remain silent, my beloved, or in most of our cases, it results in no witness at all. If we're not humble of heart, then we're arrogant enough to believe that we have the right to remain silent. That we don't have to obey God to go and what? Make disciples of all nations. That we don't have to be fishers of men. We think that we have the right because we're Americans and, and our rights, our absolute rights is what makes us Americans. We have the right to disobey. Unlike Isaiah and unlike Peter, both of whom, after they saw the glory of God and the depth of their own sin and they were forgiven, they what? They followed God. They followed Christ. They served him. We think that following Jesus and fishing for men is up to us. And so we make all kinds of excuses. I'm too busy, Lord. No one will listen, Lord. I've tried, but no one comes, Lord. People will think I'm weird, Lord. People will hate me, Lord. I may get fired, Lord. And it's ironic. We make all these excuses using the title Lord, which means he's Lord over our lives as we're living in rebellion to the one we're calling Lord. My beloved, the answer to such prideful hearts and I would argue pitiful excuses that you do not believe 
I know you don't believe, is to see Christ more clearly. It's to see him. It's to see his power. It's to see his goodness in your life, even though you're a sinner. It's to to see his heart that he desires for you to be with him and to participate in this great mission. The more clearly you see Christ, the more you'll want to follow and fish for men. The more you see how much he really does care about you, that his love for you is truly infinite, the more you will put down everything and go with him and cast out your nets. It was Isaiah's seeing God that compelled him to go and preach. It was Peter seeing Jesus that compelled him to go and preach. It'll be the same for us, my beloved. So two marks of a fisherman, a fisher of men. One, obedience to God's word, simple obedience, and two, humility of heart. But I got one more before I close, and this is, this is the most important one. So if you get this one, then everything else will just fall into place. It's having Jesus as your greatest love, your greatest treasure. It's having him be everything to you. Did you notice that Jesus' response to Peter's request was denied? Did you notice that? Peter said in verse 8, look again. Peter says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then Jesus responded in the latter part of verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. From now on you're going to come with me. I'm not going to cast you out. I'm going to bring you in. From now on, you and I are going to partner together on this great mission that I've been sent for to seek and save the lost. You see, Jesus knew that in in a couple years, he was going to do the greatest miracle of all and he was going to ascend the cross and pay for Peter's sins. Jesus knew that. Peter did not know that yet. He knew that In ascending that cross, he would be able to take away Peter's legitimate, paralyzing fear, which was a sinner being in the presence of a holy God. Jesus knew that in his perfect obedience to the Father, by humbling himself to the point of what? To even death on the cross, that he'd pay for Peter's sin, exonerate Peter from the consequences of sin, which is separation, eternal damnation from God. And once exonerated, Jesus would replace Peter's fear with a bold, listen, humility. Jesus, through the cross, would replace Peter's fear with a confident meekness, not in Peter, but in God's word. Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter, that my words have the power to control the fish of the sea. He says, Peter, don't be afraid that my grace towards you My unmerited favor towards you exposed the wickedness of your own heart. Jesus says, don't be afraid that you are a sinner deserving to be cast out of my presence and out of my Father's presence forever. He said, don't be afraid, Peter, because rather than casting you out, listen, he says, through the cross, I'm gonna bring you all the way in. Rather than honoring your request, which is justly deserved, you a sinner being cast out of the presence of Christ who is holy, Jesus said, I'm going to bring you in so you can enjoy my Father. So you can have my Father's kingdom. So you can be part of the new Jerusalem and the new creation. He says, don't be afraid, Peter. I'm going to bring you all the way in in the age to come. And I'm going to bring you in in this age to make you what? An ambassador for me. I'm going to make you 
a fisher of men so you can go out and proclaim the gospel and those who do not know me can receive it and have eternal life too. So how did Peter, James, and John respond to this glorious invitation from this good and powerful God? Look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That single verse is worthy of multiple sermons, is it not? They left everything that day. They left their boats, they left their nets, they left their occupations, they left their family. We know from Matthew chapter 4 that James and John literally left their father on the beach. James and John were fishing with their father that day and they said, we're following Jesus and dad says, see ya. Everything they valued in life, they left that day and followed Christ. And you say, well, what What would compel a man or a woman to do that? To leave everything? I mean, a few minutes earlier, they were reluctant to even put their nets out. And now, they're leaving everything and following Christ. What happened that day is the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and they saw Christ. I mean, they they really saw Jesus. They saw him for who he truly is. Not just a great teacher, not a miracle worker, not just someone who can cast out demons. They saw him as God in the flesh. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And in seeing Jesus' power and in seeing his goodness and in seeing that they actually, he wanted them. That he wanted them to come with him. They want to follow him it's one of the most beautiful aspects in the gospel of mark is as mark tells of jesus calling the disciples he says it says that jesus called to himself all those that he wanted that he wanted and they were wanted by god's divine fishermen they were wanted by the messiah and so with hearts overflowing no doubt of great joy peter james and john they leave everything. My beloved, there's only one power in the universe that can overcome man's flesh and desire for things, and that's the love of God. That's it. The love of God has the power to enable you to leave everything and follow Christ. And this is required, my beloved, not just to the disciples and not just to be a fisher of men. You heard it read already. You are required to leave everything and follow Christ if you want to be his disciples. Nine chapters later, in Luke 14, Jesus said this, listen again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Listen. I can see your eyes. You're like, yeah, I've heard that. Do you understand the magnitude of this statement? He said in verse 33, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you are not saved. You can't be a saved non-disciple. There's no such thing in the Bible. In other words, Jesus must be your greatest treasure. He must be, not in word, but in truth. He must be what you value most and cherish most in all of life. You must have a greater love for him than you do your parents 
or your spouse or your children or your grandchildren or your job or your finances or your career. It does not matter. He must be the greatest love in your life if you are going to follow him. Not anyone nor anything can be higher. There's an old story of a a four-year-old girl who was learning math and she was becoming, it's a sweet little story, becoming aware of her, the significance of numbers. And so she said to her mother one day, Mama, I love you ten times. Then after a moment's deep thought, she said, Mama, I love you twenty times. Again, after a short pause, she said in breathless tones, I love you 600 times. And then her mother gave her a grateful kiss and hug, which inspired the child's final outburst. Mommy, I love you more than all the numbers. Saints, as followers of Christ, we must love Jesus more than all the numbers. We must love him infinitely. More than the numbers in your bank account, more than the number of diplomas on your wall, more than the number of children or hobbies or accomplishments in your life. Jesus must be our greatest love. And when he is, then you will have the power, not the willpower, but the love power to follow him and do what? And fish for men. You will. You'll open your mouths. Following Christ in this world is costly. You know that. It may ruin your marriage if you're not equally yoked. It, it, may, it may cost you your job if you're at a company that's hostile to Christ, and that's easy to find today. It may cost you a lifelong friend who now hates your allegiance to Jesus. It may cost you a child who thinks your faith is foolish and cannot stand that you're trying to raise them in the way of the Lord. And if we're going to be really honest, we know that leaving anything that we like or love is hard. And yet here, Christ says we must leave what? Everything. Leaving anything is hard. Leaving everything, putting, that's putting every, death, every sin to death. Every single sin. It means every love that competes for Christ must be put in submission to Christ. Every good love must be put in submission to Christ. Now if you hear this and you say, that's impossible, well, you, in part you're right. It is impossible for you to love Christ above all else on your own. It was impossible that on that day that Peter put his nets back in the water in late morning that he was going to catch that miraculous catch apart from the divine intervention of God. It was impossible. And you're trying, leaving this sermon saying, all right, Lord, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to try harder in my flesh. I'm going to become more disciplined. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, I'm going to preach the gospel to my friends, I guess. I will. It'll remain impossible. Loving Jesus above all other, others is the power to do what God calls us to do. Loving Christ most. Unless your heart is a captured heart, you will not be like Isaiah, Peter, James, and John. You will not leave everything. You will not follow Christ. And you will not preach the gospel because it's costly when we do. You see, before you can become a fisher of men, you have to be caught in Jesus' net. Before you can cast out the net of the gospel to others, you must be caught in the net of Jesus. And what happens when Jesus catches you, 
when you begin to see his beauty and his majesty and his power and his humility, when you begin to see the great sacrifice that he made to save a sinner like you and me, then your love for him will soar and it will have sufficient power to compel you to follow him and engage in the commission, the great commission that he's on, catching other men so they too will not perish but come in and have everlasting life. You will want to leave everything and follow Jesus when you really see Jesus. He has that magnetic power. You'll want to serve him. You'll want to fish with him. Even if you don't like fishing, you want to love and be loved by him. You get caught in Jesus' net. You get ensnared by the Lord so you can see him and be loved by him and love him in return. Then you will say with all your might, like the Apostle Paul did in Philippians 3, you will say this and truly live it out. Listen, Paul said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them what? Garbage, Paul says, that I may gain Christ. And then the most famous verse, Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection in participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead so that he might have Christ forever. Is that your heart's desire? Is it minimally your heart's prayer that you would desire a captured heart? An obedient heart to God a humble heart to God, a heart that treasures Jesus truly above anyone and anything else in all of life. I want to close in prayer. I want to ask God to, to show us his son clearly so that we might have a, an Isaiah 6 or a Peter in the boat moment. I want, I want to pray that God would show us his son clearly so that we can become the obedient, humble, Christ-cheasuring fishers of men that we've been called and equipped to be. God has made you to do that. He has saved you to that end. And let's pray that by faithfully casting our nets out, even when our faith is not great, here in Silicon Valley, that we will see the same power exercised on that boat 2,000 years ago, exercised here, bringing the multitudes into eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the calling is costly, but the power is sufficient. Through your word, Father, you've shown us Christ. I ask you to do so again this morning. For all those who have gathered here, I pray you would show us Christ clearly. Ignite in us a love for him that is greater than all the numbers. An intimacy and a passion for Christ that compels us not only to follow him faithfully and humbly, but to treasure him so much, Father, that we want others to treasure him too. That we would 
cast our nets upon our own mission field so that others might come in and see the glory and the majesty of Jesus and worship him as Lord. Oh, Father, I, I pray you would do that, Lord. This, these times are so dark and there are so many that we know that have never heard the gospel and they've never heard it from our lips. Open our mouths, loosen our tongues, make our mediocre faith bear much fruit. We believe in the power of your word. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit. We believe that Christ wants to save. So open our mouths, I pray, even this week, that we might see the multitudes gathered through us. Do that, Lord, for the lost here in our midst. And do it for your glory, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.